they're kind of being an infrastructure in place. And kind of this greater movement, how we should refer to it, we should call them preservationists right. to make it the clear distinction from conservationists. They love to say they're conservationists, but they're really acting and behaving as preservationists. I think for every hunter, a trophy is a subjective term. It's not always the stud bucks with the multiple tines and impressive mass and what have you. It could be something as simple as a really nice sized doe can also be a trophy as well, or a cow elk or what have you. So mm -hmm. for every hunter, it's individualized and different. The access restrictions and caveat by putting this restriction on what you can use is obviously an attack on public lands, public lands access. But what effect it has on people in these businesses, is it going to lead to a diminishment of Pittman Robertson funds? What? That's a question we have to ask. So these lawsuits can have horrible consequences for these activities and there's no stopping what they'll do next. They're doing this with, like I said, Maine lobstermen to stop fishing. Commercially speaking, they're even trying to stop recreational fishing and boating commuting with a similar vessel rule to protect so-called endangered whales. So they're trying to strip opportunities to recreational, commercial fishers, as well as hunters onshore. And it's not going to stop. We're going to see more and more directives that are oh, brought yeah. about by these lawsuits. The lawsuits are the only thing they have. When more of the public becomes aware that they're interfering with conservation practices and using the tools of the law to stop that, that could perhaps create an appetite for people to demand and say, whoa, 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 we need to rein this law in. These people cannot get away with this and recoup all the monies that come in. Like, why are our taxpayer dollars being used to do this? And why are the laws that are meant to help delist a species and return management to the states in some cases, why is that not following through? Why are they undermining Endangered Species Act? Why are only three percent of listed species at most ever taken off the list mm -hmm. because if those species are held in perpetuity they make money hey guys real quick before we get into this episode i need you to do me a couple of favors first go give us a review on itunes can't stress it enough it's really really important for me to help keep this free and to help me keep it going next get involved with your hunting rights go join Howlful wildlife super simple it takes a couple minutes you can even do the free membership i don't care but be involved lastly i want you to do yourself a favor and up your shooting game and go get you some phoenix shooting bags use promo code john stallone to save 20 percent. that's all i got for you let's get into this episode hi welcome to howlcast Health of Wildlife's podcast. We are talking with Gabriella Hoffman, and Gabriella is the host of another podcast called uh, District of Conservation, and she's involved in a number of things. I'm going to have her talk about herself here. What's going on, Gabby? How are you? Good to talk to you, John. Nice to join you on the Howlcast. Briefly, for your listeners, I'm kind of aware of many hats, but as it relates to conservation, I guess you could say I'm one of the few journalists in the Washington, D.C. area that actively hunts and fishes, understands this these niche areas. I partake in the activities, um, some more longer than others. I've been fishing for most of my life, and I'm an adult onset hunter on the other side of the pendulum, and I've been fishing or hunting actively for now about five years, and I do shooting sports as well. So I try to immerse myself running the gamut of all the three activities. I like to hike and camp as well. Cool. I'm pretty outdoorsy for an urban dweller. Uh, you could say that. I grew up in Southern California, moved to the D.C. area about 10 years ago, and actually was able to do more shooting sports and hunting moving here. I felt the opportunities were far more plentiful. I befriended a lot of people in politics who said I should try to branch out to those activities. It led to my interest in wanting to cover the subjects more um, and also having kind of this innate love of the great outdoors and conservation and being an adult, you can kind of formulate conservation better and understand it than when you are a kid. So for me growing up and getting interested in media and journalism and covering kind of underreported subjects, I was able to tap into things I already liked or that I was already open to and just go full throttle with it. And immersing myself in these activities, I think, makes the reporting a lot more nuanced. It allows me to be more agnostic with things I don't know about, listening to people who are far more knowledgeable than me, mm -hmm. conveying their stories through the podcast, through my different writing avenues, through video, through all these different types of formats. And it's kind of a nice snitch to be in uh, for people to come to me now after years of you know pitching and, and forward-facing individuals like early on in my freelance career. 
mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of pitching and you get rejections and people are like, I don't know if we can talk to you or you're not serious enough because you're not really tied to one operation or whatnot. But over the years, since I've built up my credibility, garnered a lot of trust with people, I'm now in the very lucky position to have people come to me and pitch subjects and say, hey, can I come on your show? Or hey, can I talk to you here for your column or what have you? And so, yeah, I like to think of myself as a sober-minded natural resources, wildlife conservationist, reporter, writer, commentator, in a sea of people who don't really have proximity to the issue. And you need to have some familiarity with it, I think, to understand the stakeholders that you're covering, to understand the policy challenges that affect these people. And I really wish others who cover this beat would. Some are starting to come around, but I feel a lot of them have preconceived notions, especially of hunting and shooting sports in the Second Amendment, and um, trying to break that narrative a little bit slowly but surely. And so that's why we're talking. We're going to we're gonna talk about interesting things that are trending and kind of getting ahead of different trends and, and helping people become aware of different threats to these sporting livelihoods, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess like might as well just jump right into that and uh, cut to the chase here. I, I feel like the anti-hunting groups have been playing a very long game. Like I, <laughs> I could almost envision a like evil mastermind guy sitting behind a curtain, you know, rolling his hands and laughing because I feel like they've been playing this game, like a smart game in, in mainstream media, whether that's social media, whether that's, on tv in movies and they've been like just playing the long game it's like a long con almost to gain the minds and thoughts of the non-hunting public because if you look at everything that um that's out there like even you know go back to bambi the hunter especially not so much the angler but the hunter for for certain is always painted in this as the villain as the antagonist as or or creepy or just somebody that you don't necessarily very very few mainstream things paint us in a good light and i think that whole scenario has a lot to do with where we are today You're not wrong about there kind of being an infrastructure in place and kind of this greater movement, how we should refer to it. We should call them preservationists to make it the clear distinction from conservationists. They love to say they're conservationists, but they're really acting and behaving as preservationists. Mm -hmm. Thinking big picture, these preservationists have won over the hearts and minds of entertainment, media, somewhat in politics, not entirely. They haven't captured every politician, but some politicians especially those who are wielding a lot of power now in the White House Mm -hmm. and in government agencies and somewhat in Congress and a few state houses and legislatures. Then you also have them being able to be very powerful when it comes to representing their interests, legally speaking. So they are able to sue in perpetuity Mm -hmm. using the legal system to get monetary gains, to prevent seminal conservation laws from being implemented and enacted There are lots of serial litigants who are very financially well off, and they have, again, captured the emotions and appealed to people's, I don't know if you could call it sensibilities, but their their affections Mm -hmm. about protecting cuddly animals. Oh, um, yeah. They tug on the heartstrings. Yeah. So they've won the narrative, in a sense, um, and they have a lot of powerful tools at their disposal. However, when the truth is illuminated and presented out there and people in media start to gain an interest. And I think COVID actually brought about a renewed interest in hunting. Mm -hmm. And I think people who were not supportive of hunting were very curious to see, even amidst all the lockdowns and crazy protocols and restrictions that were coming, one of the things that the betters in government allowed us to do for the most part, we don't really need their permission to do this, was to go fishing and hunting, Mm -hmm. especially hunting. And a lot of people were billing hunting as the original social distancing, the original activity to obviously stop the spread, what what have you. Um, But but that just aside, people were really fascinated to see kind of a surge of people going into hunting. They were lapsed hunters. They were new hunters or people who were occasionally hunting and maybe really wanted to go about it in a more formal way. And you started to see mainstream media cover hunting in a fairly positive light. I was very shocked. There was one piece in the 
National Public Radio, NPR, Mm -hmm. New York Times was covering it, Washington Post, all these legacy media outfits, which are generally hostile to hunting. They don't really care about it unless if it's like hunters railing against Second Amendment rights or something. They like to find a hook like that. Mm -hmm. But they took a genuine interest in covering hunting in a pretty fair way. And it, it stunned me, and I gave them proper kudos when when those pieces came out. So I think when when certain unforeseen events happen and they see that Americans are avoiding the grocery store, maybe going to the field to get protein sources, free-range organic meat, they can't just be stuck in their cocoons and unaware of what is happening. Mm-hmm. They're starting to talk to stakeholders. So I think while the outlook looks pretty negative because we have, like I said, different interests working against us, very powerful interests. They tried to set that every hunter is a poacher, conflating the two, mm-hmm. when obviously that's not the case. Right. So they have this pent-up narrative that every hunter is bloodthirsty, wants to disrupt ecological balance. They're responsible for biodiversity loss. And when people read more into it and they talk to actual stakeholders and see that's not the case, they're pretty stunned. They don't know what to do. I think, what is it? There's like 5% who are virulently anti-hunting, 5% of the population that's very pro-hunting. And then you have that convincible 80 to 90% in the middle mm-hmm. who don't really have a formalized opinion of hunting. They're not totally against it, but they may not be for all aspects or all variations of it. And so I think we do have an opportunity, even though there has been a media capture, there's been somewhat of a government capture and even a legal system capture because they're just very powerful and they're able to keep their their financial pipeline going with sue and settle agreements under the equal access to justice stack which we could talk more about later i actually want to talk to you about that because i keep bringing that up and i can never remember what it is isn't it part of like some homestead act like it's a portion of that or am i i don't think so no it's a little separate from that issue this relates to um how would you say like citizens interest groups or citizens who feel I guess, I guess the, the simplest way to explain what it is. So for the longest time, um, individuals in the United States felt that they were wronged mm-hmm. because of not having access to certain legal services. So if they were sued or they were wronged, they couldn't, they couldn't use like amicus briefs or friends of the courts or really kind of um, have access to certain things and, and to petition the government and what have you. And so they formulated this law in the late 70s, early 80s to give, let's say, people with legitimate cases, grievances against the government to Mm -hmm. sue the government for discovery, for wrongdoing, what have you. And it was supposed to correct wrongs if the government did any wrong to individuals or groups or what have you. But environmentalists saw an opportunity with that law to -hmm. say, okay, well, we're going to use this under the guise of protecting consumers or individuals who feel like they've been wronged, and we're going to exploit them and their plight and then we're going to use it to recoup lots of very expensive attorney's fees. Right. And a lot of the times the law is not enforced. So uh, there's a lot of there's there's no transparency with it in the current day. They removed the Department of Interior, removed the website to know how much in settlement money these organizations are getting and their lawyers are receiving. So the, the Biden administration doesn't want us to know how much in taxpayer money is going to these outfits. And these outfits continually sue. They're suing to stop certain forms of hunting. They're suing to stop Maine lobster fisheries. They're suing to stop lots of different things, activities that contribute to true conservation all across the board, onshore and offshore. The same repeat offenders, Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, Center for Biological Diversity. We've seen these names. You guys have talked about these interests on Hallcast and throughout your efforts. They're everywhere. And they're very powerful, the multi-million dollar outfits. And they have the ear of a lot of powerful people. And they know how to use the court system, unfortunately, to their advantage. And so, the yeah, the Equal Access to Justice Act needs to be reined in. There's been long discussion about it. Congress can actually fix it. And I think hunting groups can combat it with their own Mm -hmm. um, lawsuits and and counteract them and countersue them. I was going to say, can we play the same game? I think we could. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're not going to abuse the law, but I think you can counteract what they're doing to use the proper channels that are laid out by the law within the confines of it and to counter them. And that's what a lot of the lawsuits typically are. It's to respond to a lot of these sue and settle type arrangements um, that the preservationists are putting out there. And so, yes, it is a bit of an uphill climb, unfortunately, but I think there are plentiful opportunities to showcase hunting, to showcase fishing, fishing, because they've just been American pastimes for the longest time, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're getting more positive coverage 
Uh, there are people like me who have big platforms who can educate people. I'm not the only person. I don't have the biggest platform out there, but I have enough of a platform mm-hmm. where people want to learn more and they they want to get curious about policies that affect your ability to hunt and fish and shoot guns and what have you. Um, there are others who are talking to celebrities who like to talk about hunting and fishing. And, and that's a great way to educate people too, beyond the politics as well. Right. And so social media has opened the door, I think, even with some of the restrictions that come or the abuse of certain social media features uh, by anti-hunters, anti-gunners, what have you, to kind of suppress some of that content. Um, There are people, I guess, who some individuals that come to mind. I know Cameron Haynes also always talks to celebrities, Mm -hmm. Um, plenty of others like him who have big enough platforms. What is it? Uh, Donald Trump Jr. talks about hunting, too, as well. Mm-hmm. And some other, so they 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 can bring the perspective of hunting into the forefront more, get people interested, and people even beyond them. Who's it? Stephen Ranella too. He does a great job as well with educating people about hunting, kind of in a more mainstream way. And he's gotten a cult following almost because of his efforts in his TV show, and and people look to him as a source and a and a person to reference um, with that. So there are many people with big platforms, millions of followers, who can educate people about hunting and get people in that very big middle to perhaps reconsider uh, maybe their past preconceived notions about hunting, mm-hmm. maybe their previous animus towards hunting and see that there's an appeal to it. And if you, let's say hunt, it's more preferable than maybe factory farming or perhaps having, let's say government officials, let's say coal deer or coal, some sort of, you know, wildlife species in question. Right. It's better to have individual hunters rather than waste taxpayer dollars to uh, what is it to sterilize deer or to call Yeah, them, did you hear about that population. on Staten Island? Yeah, that's a I mean, well-known notorious story. Millions of dollars they spent trying to sterilize and they got like 10 deer sterilized. Yeah. It was something ridiculous like that. Yeah. That's right. So to, to basically humanize hunters more. And then even on the more controversial side with, let's say, bear conservation efforts. Mm-hmm. I know bears are very controversial. I don't have any intention myself to ever hunt grizzly bears, but I understand they're importance for being managed. And if you don't have management, it creates a huge imbalance. And especially when we're seeing its status distorted. Now they're wanting to regulate every grizzly bear in the lower 48 in the same way when it used to be that you kind of regulate them per like subspecies. So the, the Yellowstone subspecies was regulated separately from the four other subspecies populations. Now they've wanted to do it again and said, we're not going to delist them until every subspecies is recovered or we return it to its historical range. You can never, yeah. you'll never be able to delist the grizzly bear, even with healthy numbers coming out in different segments right. of the lower 48 population with that kind of attitude. It betrays the Endangered Species Act and the stipulations of it. It goes against the science already readily available in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, showing that bear numbers have recovered substantially, well beyond carrying capacity and so for that and, and, and kind of even showing beyond the management side, the Pittman-Robertson funds that go to help bear den studies to show that humans are not just trying to cull them or to manage them mm-hmm. when it's necessary and allowed, bear hunters and, and other hunters are also going to help the scientists and support bear den studies right. and to ensure that you can keep their populations healthy and strong and monitor them as best as possible. Some people think that's counterintuitive and paradoxical, but it's not. That's just how wildlife management goes, as you guys very well know. So people have, and I try to do this in my Conservation Nation series I host with the Free Market Environmental Organization. We talk to different stakeholders. I've talked about bear conservation too. And so when you present that like storytelling format, Blood Origins does this as well with telling people's individual stories, many other outfits as well. When you try to share the different dimensions of hunting, you can get those undecided in that big middle Mm -hmm. to kind of give a second look to it and say, okay, maybe I misunderstood it. This is perhaps what I should consider about it. So I want to be optimistic, even with the big challenges ahead. And then when I see a final thought before your next question, of course, we've seen a lot of stories covered in mainstream media about increased human wildlife conflicts. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny. It's, it's I, We always hate to say we t- told you so. Right. Some of them end in tragedy, unfortunately, these conflicts. New Jersey, you guys notably obviously mentioned this and been tracking this, but when Jersey restored their bear hunt recently, the court tried to put an injunction, groups were trying to sue. And then because they were able to challenge the challenge to it, they were able to proceed with the hunt because of the need. The anti-hunting governor, Phil Murphy, recognized that 
I can't hold my preconceived notions. My citizens are getting attacked. This is not good for humans, my constituents, or the bears. And so he made the very smart decision to really be guided by science here. And so when you see that type of incident take place or that conversion, I don't, I wouldn't call it a conversion, but that kind of small dose of rationality come to an anti-hunter politician's mind. Uh That's where I think we were able to win and say, see, even the anti-hunters recognize you can't stall this. You can't prevent this. You have to have some management or things just become chaotic. And people forget even beyond the human bear conflicts or human wildlife conflicts, these aggressive bears or cougars or other predators, apex predators will ultimately attack weaker ones in their Mm -hmm. individual species. That's ultimately what happens too. And I've learned this over the years talking to biologists and experts and they've said like, it it doesn't just disrupt humans who are coming onto the landscape. It hurts ultimately those down the food chain or those they are competing with. Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't want, I didn't want to cut you off because you want to roll. There was a, I want to back up a couple of things. You were talking about having people with big platforms and stuff like that, uh, helping to carry the torch, so to speak, and getting, non-hunters, not anti-hunters, because changing mm-hmm. anti-hunters' minds is very difficult, but non-hunters to understand and have a glimpse of, of what what it's about. I think it's very important for us, all us sportsmen, in a grassroots effort. Because now, back in the day, we used to we'd shoot a deer and we'd you know, throw in the bed of the truck and you'd drive to the city center or the town center and you'd show all the buddies or bring it to the coffee house, whatever. And that was social media back then. Now your social media, now your, you know, coffee house showing off your trophy, uh, so to speak, is is online. And it's in front of thousands, potentially millions of people. And you know, say a picture is worth a thousand words, but whose words are they? You know, those, they, they could be misconstrued. It can be, you know, weaponized against you and so on and so forth. And so I always caution people to think about what they're doing when, and, and myself included, cause I catch myself doing crap all the time. You know, we're always doing stuff for the likes, right. And, and my other businesses, my, my guiding service and, you know, that it runs off of a different, uh, different driver, so to speak, you, you know, the guys that want to see kill shots and this and that, those, those are the, that's what sells those things. So it's always like this crazy balance, but you always got to think about who else is looking at it. So I think that's really important is to just kind of step back and, you know, if you're going to put up a, a grip and grin photo, that's great. I don't, there's people out there, oh, don't put up grip and grins, only put, you know, put up uh, photos. Or, I, I don't believe in that. Like, you know, there's, this has been going on since people were drawn on caves for the hunter. So put your grip and grin photo, but also put a photo of the meat that you're taking out. Maybe include, a, if, you, if you made a meal from it, maybe include a photo of the meal that you made from it, that kind of stuff. And it's all packaged together. And that way people are like, oh, cool. You know, it's not just this guy showing off the antlers of this deer or whatever. There's the meat. There's what he made from it. There's what she made from it, whatever. And I think that's important. But I think one of the things that we're doing with Halfa Wildlife, and I haven't really fully on launched it. I'm just kind of... Uh, been playing around with it is creating reels and creating content and stuff like that for Instagram is what I'm trying it out on that has a message of conservation and what the hunter means to conservation in it. And it's not, you know, it's, I'm using uh, video clips of live animals and so on and so forth. And we've put out I put out a couple that that did very well and and transcended the hunting community, and that's what I wanted to see how well it would do outside of the hunting community. And I think that's important for people to start doing stuff like that on their own, so to and also have those conversations at the water cooler at work. You know, hey, hey, Bob, you know, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went, you know. I went hunting with my family and da 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 da. But then 
you know, open the door and have those conversations. So you can, you can't just like break into a room and be like, Hey, do you know what conservation is? Do you know what the hunter does? Like, but getting in those conversations and opening the door to have those open discussions with people who don't hunt so they can get an understanding of where you come from and, and what it all, how it all fits, you know, conservation and hunting and the money and, and all that, the food and all the things that are encompassing. So they don't have this just one-sided view of the Elmer Fudd, you know, running around willy nilly shooting, drinking beer and shooting out of the back of a pickup truck. Cause that's the picture that's painted of us. I also wanted to go back and have you kind of clarify in a little bit more layman's terms, maybe on that, the act that allows the anti-hunting groups to sue and use taxpayers' money to do so. Yeah. So your first point briefly about gripping grins and portraying like an all-encompassing image of hunters. I try to do that myself. I picked up an interest in wildlife photography slash videography. I'm an amateur. I'm not an expert by any means, but anytime I'm vacationing or traveling somewhere and I'm not hunting or it's off season, I like to photograph wildlife and capture it and show that I'm a multidimensional person. I'm not just going out with a gun or a muzzleloader to the field to get deer to eat. And when I do, um, I do show the grip and grin tasteful. I try not to show any bloody pictures and orient the animal in a way that's, you know, explaining why I'm doing it. And I usually post a long caption that says I harvested the deer. It's not going to go wasted and talk about the story of how it was done. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty received. Well, I think even people who don't hunt tend to receive well, when you explain that this deer will not go in vain or be remembered in vain, it's going to be used and put to good use. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of hunters do that. That's one thing. And the all encompassing image is not impossible. I see many people exceptionally do this and portray like look at this deer i got in my trail cam even before taking a shot or not even taking a shot or anything of that nature just observing the animal from your blind or Mm -hmm. from a trail cam clip or something of that nature people do that pretty well or some fascinating you know maybe some uh, let's say like albino deer or bald eagle comes about the state wildlife agencies show this too where was it i think it was oklahoma recently showed this pea bald pie bald um I forget what it's called when it's applied to birds, but this bald eagle was completely white. Oh, okay, um, cool. So it's kind of similar to that. And I was like, this is super fascinating. So obviously the state wildlife agency supports hunting, encourages that, but also shows unique wildlife inundations of that as well. And so like wildlife agencies do that. I think the people with big platforms who show the multiple dimensions of hunting do that really well. Just showing something unique like earlier this year, I had a turkey hen, eastern turkey hen come to my backyard. I was in disbelief. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get my camera, pull this out, and I can't hunt turkeys in my backyard. I'm in an urban area of Northern Virginia, which doesn't allow you to hunt turkeys, and that's fine. Um, And they're pretty scarce here. So it was pretty interesting to see it and amazing to see it in my backyard just strutting. And I captured some video of it. I took photos, and I still have that now. I I tried to enter actually into my state wildlife uh, photo contest. I don't get any monetary gain out of it, but I just want to see if they like the picture and find it interesting that, oh, a turkey is in Northern Virginia recorded in the spring. But, you know, I think a lot of us with platforms who can help influence people, we can showcase that. Like, like I said earlier, I try to do that personally speaking, and maybe it'll inspire others to do the same too, not to show the grip and grin. If we're trying to educate people and show that it's not just the killing side. When I get some processed meat of mine from Georgia, I went to and was participating in the hunter recruitment project. I took a friend of mine who's never hunted for deer before successfully. She was able to get her first deer. I got my first deer on the East coast with a muzzleloader. I've gotten deer before in Wyoming. And so for me, it was a nice experience having gone on a couple deer hunts, some of them largely unsuccessful. Now a few that have been successful and just kind of learn how hunting on the East coast is, even though I've lived here, but to get both perspectives, how to hunt deer on the East and West coast of the country. And so for me, going to that experience, I was able to get a deer on a muzzleloader, still waiting on the the meat to come. It's going to come. And when it comes, I'm going to showcase like, oh, look at this cool package I got with meat that I harvested sustainably. So like when that comes to my door in the coming days or so, I will be able to showcase that aspect. Like you said, show how how you're going to use the meat, what meals you're going to prepare and show that it's not going to go to waste. It's not just you having bloodlust and say, I want to shoot an animal that has nice tines 
has this size and it's, you know, something to brag about all the time. Like that's great. And I think for every hunter, a trophy is a subjective term. It's not always the stud bucks with the multiple tines and impressive mass and what have you. It could be something as simple as a really nice size doe can also be a trophy as well, or a cow elk or what have you. So Mm -hmm. for every hunter, it's individualized and different. And there's nothing wrong with getting a trophy size animal. I hope one day I could successfully win uh, Virginia's now elk lottery tag and, and go hunting for the bull elk because you're allowed to get up to each person. You're, you're, I think it's like six people who can draw for the elk tag because we're just fairly new into mm-hmm. our formal hunting season for elk. So everyone has to get a bull elk. You're allowed one elk per season and then you're not eligible to get it for three years to kind of let it so people can compete for the tag and not duplicate it. Right. Um, and maybe when the, the herd continues to expand, there'll be more opportunities. But if I'm able to, you know, one day get the bull tag, I will definitely, you know, if I harvest one, show it off because it's an impressive animal. Would right. I let it go to waste. So there, there's opportunities to do both and to show like every type of animal you harvest. And then the field dressing, um, not show, I try not to show the bloody parts of it. Cause like, I don't want to like get, not that I'm worried about censorship on social media, but someone could be like, this is so gory. I just tell people like I processed it and there are other aspects of processing, like the grinding of the meat that are more palatable for social media. So you can tell people you feel dressed it, or I think there's a way where you could show like the deer hanging upside down and um, no guts or anything of that nature, but show like a tasteful way of you feel dressing mm-hmm. or skinning or hiding or what have you of different animals. So there are different approaches and people take different approaches, but I think an all encompassing experience of social media can be shared. And then you can also just showcase the animals you come across and admire and show that, see, we're multidimensional. We're not largely taking things all throughout the year. Most of the time, it's a, a small fraction of your time of the year <laughs> where you're actually harvesting animals. Most of the time, you're admiring, you're seeing things, you're observing your surroundings. And so I think people are grasping that more. And I guess on the other side of the pendulum, you were asking about the EAJA. Mm-hmm. I guess more simply, um, <laughs> laws are meant to be confusing. Right. That's a problem that I think a lot of people are starting to grasp especially as it relates to conservation. Why is this law being abused? Why are different special interest groups able to exploit those laws and not be held to account when they're abusing those laws and kind of defying the conditions that are laid out and they're harassing different interests or suing state wildlife agencies or previous administration or what have you with no consequences because they kind of behave like ambulance chasers and they're never held to account. The problem why they're able to do this is because there hasn't been any reforms to the law to make it so it goes back to its original intent of being for people and being used for people simply to make their case against the government and say, you exceeded your power here. Uh, I need to sue you to do this to be able to recoup or reclaim something, not have it be abused to the point where you're preventing the implementation of already set laws like the Endangered Species Act or regulatory reforms for timber for NEPA or um, suing most recently you guys have talked about this too this was born about from a sue and settle agreement the center for biological diversity sued the fish and wildlife service to ban lead tackle and bullet usage Mm -hmm. on any new openings and they won it's going into effect i think for every future opening they've said it's going to be kind of ordained as a policy unless a new administration comes in and reverses that right previously The last administration undid the midnight order that former Obama put into place, essentially banning the same thing. Now they've actually implemented it as policy because they've been petitioned by these special interest groups who give to the party that currently controls the White House. Listen to them, and they certainly are listening to them if they agree to these conditions. And so it's this kind of nexus of different special interest groups who have the ear of the White House and the Department of Interior, and they're all foot soldiers marching for the same cause. Mm-hmm. And so they, they lean on them. They say, well, we're opening it up to public opinion. We want to hear your perspective. They just do that because they're legally required under the Administrative Act, which is a law that guides all rulemaking. You know, comment period, you've seen those comment forms on the federal side that say you have 60 days or 90 days to comment opposing yeah. or supporting this rule. So they have to say and allow for a debate because the, the law stipulates it. They don't always adhere to that rule. No. Um, but they still have preconceived this administration, in my observation, when it comes to sue and settle agreements that lead to forcing them to do rulemaking because that's how they realized they could implement this. You could sue and then that triggers a rule from the Department of Interior and then the Department of Interior 
largely agrees with that lawsuit and says, okay, we heard from you, but unfortunately we're going to be pursuing this because this is the right thing to do. So they, they already have preconceived determinations, even with ha- allowing for open dialogue, because that's what they want to do. And they, they believe misinformation born about from sue and settle agreements that you have to ban all lead tackle and bullets because they conflate lead fragments with solid lead. And then they're, they're misinterpreting exactly what that is. And maybe some listeners support lead alternatives. I think it should be a laissez-faire thing. Let people decide what tools and accessories within the confines of the law should be. But something as simple as that is the way to understand mm-hmm. how these lawsuits can facilitate rulemaking that strips hunters and anglers, especially of access. So any this lawsuit goes back to you ban lead, tackle, and bullets with any new openings. So you're essentially pricing people out of these activities for yeah. the most part because yeah. most new hunters use conventional lead, tackle, and bullets. The alternatives, unfortunately, are very expensive to most people who are just starting out in these activities. Mm-hmm. So th- this is seen through this lawsuit that triggered the rule change as a way of attacking this livelihood um, by pricing people out of the sport. And it could have huge ramifications, downstream effects, even beyond access. I mean, the access restrictions and caveat by putting this restriction on what you can use is obviously an attack on public lands, public lands access. But what what effect it has on people in these businesses, it, is it going to lead to a diminishment of Pittman-Robertson funds? Probably. That's a question we have to ask. So these lawsuits can have horrible consequences for these activities. And there's no stopping what they'll do next. They're doing this with, like I said, Maine lobstermen to stop fishing. Commercially speaking, they're even trying to stop recreational fishing and boating commuting uh, with a similar vessel rule to protect so-called endangered whales. So they're trying to strip opportunities to recreational, commercial fishers, as well as hunters onshore. And it's not going to stop. We're going to see more and more directives that are brought about by these lawsuits. That's kind of why EAJA reforms have to take place. It's at the behest of Congress to do this. There are bills, but is there an appetite to change it? I don't think so because of who is leading certain chambers. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I want to speak if you, and if you know, this, it sounds like you do, cause you're very, very well versed on it. The mechanism of it. Like I just, I want to put it in like simple terms and, and maybe I'll say it and you tell me if I'm wrong or, or am, I, am I right? They, bring about a lawsuit. They use taxpayers' money to do it, so it doesn't cost them anything to do it. And when they settle, that money that's given, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I'm not 100% sure legal of this. Legal fees. The legal fees, exactly. Yes. The legal fees, these organizations actually have a hand. I don't know how they do it, but they have a way. to have. They have a hand in the law firm, I guess that is is uh, suing on their behalf suing mm-hmm. on their behalf so they're actually making money from the lawsuit mm-hmm. to, that's essentially keep, how it is yeah to keep on making lawsuits so it's like yep. it benefits them just to keep on suing for it's everything fundraising tool yep right and that's how they are able to sustain themselves because in the court of public opinion when let's say their claims are challenged the lawsuits are the only thing they have. When more of the public becomes aware that they're interfering with conservation practices and using the tools of the law to stop that, that could perhaps create an appetite for people to demand and say, whoa, 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 we need to rein this law in. These people cannot get away with this and recoup all the monies mm-hmm. that come in. Like, why are our taxpayer dollars being used to do this? And why are the laws that are meant to help delist a species and return management to the states in some cases? Why is that not following through? Why are they undermining the Endangered Species Act? Why are only 3% of listed species at most ever taken off the list? Mm -hmm. Because if those species are held in perpetuity, they make money. Stemming again from these channels, uh, from this web that they've been able to build for themselves. Triggering the lawsuits to undermine the law and then they recoup the monies. That kind of entanglement that they've done. So they're undermining conservation because they're preservationists. So they want to preserve the status quo when it comes to environmental policy, which means no species gets recovered. They continue to ambulance chase. And then they ultimately deceive the public about the true status of black bears, which are not endangered, Mm -hmm. as the claim has been made in New Jersey. There's no proof of it. The IUCN has said American black bears are least concerned. 
There's no basis to claim that black bears are endangered in the North America. That's ludicrous. Everything that we've uh, been involved with, everything we've been involved with in the last year that had something to do with black bears, every single state has said that their black bear population is higher now than it's ever been exactly. in recorded history. Yep. <laughs> so but they're bastardizing. They're bastardizing existing law and undermining it while pretending to support it. The Endangered Species Act works great with preventing extinction. Yeah. But we are not working to bring back those species through delisting. Uh, the delisting mechanism has to be fulfilled under the ESA. And if it's not fulfilled, the law is not working as intended. The species in question stay threatened or protected, um, threatened or endangered protected. And you never see those species bounce back. It takes forever for them to be put back into state management to allow for things to happen. And then it just, again, it's, it's to fulfill their bottom line. And when they could say that something's imperiled or endangered, even though there's evidence counteracting that mm -hmm. and, you know, debunking that they're still able to get away with it because no one challenges them in media. Uh, very few. And I also think it stems from, we're not really seeing many politicians who are plugged into these activities. That's also another problem we're facing too, because of increased urbanization or maybe certain people have fallen away from hunting, even in the public square and in, in, in public policy. We're seeing people crafting policy for activities they have no familiarity with, or maybe they're not so much involved with it. Or they could say, you know, my dad did this, but I'm different from my relatives. They never wanted us to have to manage bears or have to manage wolves. So I can't support this because they have some warped reality conception of what wildlife management is. It's only for select species. It's not for more species than you you obviously think it could be for um, even the more controversial types of hunting like predator contests or grizzly bear management or wolf management, what have you. And um, I, I think that goes to the problem. We don't have people necessarily representing our interests in politics. You look in Washington state and some others because they're stacked with people who are not for hunting or you have people elected who have like Phil Murphy, although we'll give him kudos for changing his mind on the black bear hunt who have openly and actively campaigned against hunting. Right. Um, so it, it comes to, and then those who hunt, they're not speaking about it openly or they're supporting measures like the return act, which says and conflates that Pittman Robertson funds are an infringement. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> there, yeah. There's no evidence of that no. whatsoever. And I'm, I'm as conservative and for the second amendment as possible. And I've done every bit of research as I could. And I've skewered the Republican who put, his support behind it because so I was just like, it's, it's unfounded. You guys did absolutely too. It's, it's totally unfounded. It's a diminishment of the funds. It's, it would go down to 800 million from the 1.5 billion that was recently appropriated for it. Mm -hmm. And, and then those, some of those co-sponsors have said, I'm a sportsman, I'm a sportsman. And then they support it. And then they'll have to be confronted about it if they don't remove their support of the bill. And some Republicans have removed support of it as well. Right. So it's, it would be nice if we had people, representing our interests who actually lived it out. And many do. I've talked my to several governors. About that, about that, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. But my, no, biggest no, thing, my biggest thing about the Return Act, besides that, you know, it's a diminishment of, of actual funds, um, you know, on a yearly basis, it's going to remove a portion of our seat at the table. Part of mm -hmm. the reason why we are spent so effective at fending off the other side is because we can they could say whatever they want they could come up with any social science bs that they want to come up with but at the end of the day it is the sportsmen that are not only funding but we're we're all, we're the we're the main stakeholder so if you take away yeah. that from us and you give it to everybody now they have a bigger voice than than they had before they have the right to to their their opinion is more valid because now they're not only a, a user a non-consumptive user but they are somebody who contributes where we're already seeing that mm -hmm. yeah and and all these bills that are coming up that are are not funded directly from the sportsmen i think they're bad news like i like the idea of grasslands i like the idea of uh, you know rawa but those are dangerous to me. I think those are dangerous. I have some questions about Rawa too. I've heard different stakeholder friends of mine. I think in Florida, they have some questions about Rawa, some other portions of the country like it. I need to do more research myself, but 
I've, I've had some same concerns as well uh, with that. But um, no, and, and the New York Times actually took up the Return Act slightly in the opposite way and said, look at these Republicans giving us ideas right. for removing the yeah, exactly. Hunter Engler from the table. So it can be exploited by our opponents mm-hmm. to strip us away from it opened this. opened up a and Pandora's wondered, box for sure. Exactly. So they gave ammunition to anti-hunters in this case. And also, I think it's a misunderstanding of what Pittman-Robertson does. And certainly, it could be stewarded and improved at any time, all the time. I'm totally for that. I don't think anyone disagrees that we should not improve it. There's a modernization Pittman-Robertson Act that has been deliberated and debated. Mm-hmm. I forget if it's gone into law so far or if it's still kind of in the in the um, committee stage. But I know we have there have been some debates about modernizing it, bringing it to the forefront. But they forget that um, target shooting on public lands is also part of Pittman Robertson. It's not like yep. you're just paying this excise tax. It's not an additional tax on what you pay. You're not seeing that on your bill when you purchase a gun. It's just kind of you know something that happens behind the scenes and and has done that. And no one has expressed objections to it. People have been pretty okay with it in the 80 plus years that this law has been in effect. And no one is it's a it's a very good excise tax system, according to the Tax Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization or nonpartisan organization that says it's one of the best examples of an excise tax mm-hmm. that there could be because there's largely approval. The money largely goes to where it's intended to go for habitat restoration, wildlife conservation, hunters education, and target ranges as well. But I don't think we hear so much about the target improvement that has been done through it, your ability to shoot on public lands or recreationally shoot on public lands is made possible because of Pittman-Robertson. If someone can't go to a a gun tree club or to a splashy range and what they have there is a public range in their vicinity, that is made possible because of PR funds. So you're not losing your Second Amendment. You're having access to go shoot on public ranges and for them to remove fees. I think there's been some additions recently, there was the target shooting range that President Trump signed into law to enhance PR funds mm-hmm. for public ranges. So it's not like there's no enhancements for Second Amendment rights. It's totally the opposite when you see some oh. of the improvements that have been made on top of that to, to steward PR dollars better. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing is like they, they failed to recognize, supporters of the bill failed to recognize that PR funds are the fertilizer that cultivates 2A. It's the main yes. – like. PR funds are the main driver for shooting sports in, in, in a lot of ways because it goes, you know, it goes to the shooting ranges. It goes to the R3. It goes to Hunter Ed. And it goes to all these things that create avenues that people will have that want to mm-hmm. hunt, you know, or not just hunt, but want to, want to shoot. And those are like, that's the, what you know, for lack of better terminology is that's the gateway drug to all the other stuff. Like, so it's like, there's no, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I feel like they, the thing, they cut PR off their nose to spite their face. <laughs> no, of course. I, I totally see that. And they can't claim they're for sportsmen if they're advocating for that simultaneously. And I, I've heard from the inside, from some people in the incoming speaker's office. I have a friend there. She told me that this would be dead on arrival. It will never get out of committee I if know. it's ever introduced. So it's we still have that bad, to look though. forward to. I, it's it still is, bad yes, because it opened bill. it opened up a Pandora's box. Yes, it, it should have never to, seen the light of day. Exactly, I totally agree. But this law essentially was a self correction to market game hunting that extirpated commonly known species and healthy numbers of species that we see and enjoy today. Mm-hmm. This was these were hunters and sportsmen, shooters, gun owners saying at the turn of the 20th century, "Oh boy, we're not going to have these species to enjoy, whether for harvest or for admiring." If we don't self-correct and put seasonal limits, bag limits, and create wildlife agencies. So it was a correction to an overextension of hunting that was just not sustainable. We don't have bison as we could, for instance. That's the one species that kind of didn't see the the renewal like some of the other species have. Mm-hmm. But, but they're bouncing back, of course. But um, that's one example of kind of a tragic case of hunting gone awry because there were no regulations and, but, but bison are slowly moving back. I'm not trying to say that they're right. imperiled or they're not endangered, but that's one species that a lot of hunters have said, well, we could have had an improved status with them had market game hunting, not decimated them the most. Right. I right. think, but every other species, elk, bear, Turkey, Turkey have languished a little bit in the Southeastern region here in the United States, but that's not because of over hunting. I think it's um, predator issues 
and some other type of conditions, external factors that are contributing to their population losses mm -hmm. and limits on bag, um, bag limits and harvests, uh, from my understanding. But most of these species that were hunted to extirpation have largely bounced back. Black bears, too. Uh, the bald eagle, um, even though you don't hunt bald eagles, Pittman-Robertson funds have gone to help them, too. Right. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that funding is not always exactly in the hunting scope. Like how many things that are uh, like public land access and all this other stuff that was created from not necessarily just Pittman Robinson, but just mm -hmm. funding in general that came from hunting, you know? And those are the things that I, we, we were talking about earlier that I want us hunters to one, educate ourselves on it so we don't cause a problem, but educate yourself on stuff like that so you can be out there talking about that with somebody when it comes up. That's a, exactly. You know, so you have the right, um, I don't want to say argument because I don't never want you to argue with, because if you're arguing, then they're probably anti-hunting. But uh, being able to educate somebody who doesn't know, you know, um, anyway, without beating a dead horse. Um, well, Gabby, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. Um, love to have you on again and discuss some of this other stuff. I'm I'm glad you brought up that, and I still never I still never know what act it is, but that that lawsuit because I've been trying to tell people about that for a long time and I never know because it's probably I, part of the reason is I don't know what it's called, and then uh, you know that that's the mechanism that they use and it's just like this big business and I'm glad you shed some light on it. Um, of course. Yeah. So, well, next uh, time hopefully we can discuss how they're trying to remake wildlife agencies because that's the way they're going to, oh, yes. that's the next avenue they're going to use because sure. they have found, you know, you elect certain people to office. They are very influential in who gets to have a seat at the table as a commissioner. Oh yeah. Let's, and let's look at of, Washington and Oregon and yeah, that stuff's crazy. Right very now. soon Arizona too, potentially. I don't know who Katie Hobbs is going to be tapping for uh, the different wildlife commissioner position. So we'll have yeah. to follow that closely too. Yeah, um, lots scary. to be said there. So I would love to come back on and, and break that down to see if we're seeing other wildlife agencies going to be kind of undermined from within. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And, Thank you, uh, John. I'd love to have you back on. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor. Go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%. All one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you on the next show.